The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, I'd like to talk a little about the second aspect of right view that is, um, you'll see it in the readings and it's usually considered part of right view and then also it's closely related to the third and fourth noble truths. And it's another one of those words like dukkha that's a little misunderstood. And this is the teaching around karma. So the popular, just for now put aside the popular ideas of karma like, you know, I got cancer because I was bad or something like that but it's much more to do with our conditioning and it's actually part of the good news because it's how we can understand that we are that what really counts for our long-term happiness and well-being is how we respond and to what happens rather than actually what happens so you may have noticed that you don't have all that much control over what happens (laughs) But we can learn to cultivate a wiser response within to what happens that affects our conditioning. So I just wanted to share, this is a classic, it's the beginning stanzas of this poem called the Dhammapada that's one of the most uh, famous teachings of the Buddha. He says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak and act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak and act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So it's really pointing to the idea, as one of you just said, come up here and talk to us, I think that happiness is an inside job. You know, so we're really learning to work with what is our own conditioning. So we are very much a part of, we are nature. Another way of understanding conditioning is that it's, it's nature. It's our human nature. And we're part of nature. And nature is not exactly considered to be either inherently good or bad in Buddhism, but it's this complex network of potentialities and conditioning. And we can learn to work with it. So that, so that we can meet whatever happens in a way that is, that is not suffering. Um, I read a, a story that I like by a woman who's a psychologist, Mary Pfeiffer. And um, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, I don't seem to have it. Anyway, she said that she was going through a depression and she was reading a lot about depression in a way that somehow was making her, she is a psychologist, so she's not against psychology, but it was making her feel more and more kind of uniquely a big bundle of, of symptoms and suffering. And, and then when she started reading Buddhism, she felt like uh, it really lifted her heart and she started feeling like, oh, I'm just a member of common humanity and there is suffering and we're all suffering and I'm going to have to learn some skills. And that's such a different point of view, you know, than that there's something uniquely wrong with me. We are all products of our conditioning. And our conditioning comes from when we're children, when we're babies, from who knows how back, certainly from in, from 
the atmosphere that we grew up in, from our parents, from their parents, from time immemorial, our conditioning comes down. And it's, it tends to unfold under the umbrella of ignorance. And ignorance is seen, unlike some, you know, some religions teach original sin, Buddhism teaches more like original ignorance. Like we're babies, right? <laughs> Our parents were babies. It's babies all the way back, and we, you know, and ape babies, <laughs> and we don't know what we don't know how to do better, and so we start forming these patterns of reactivity to what happens, and then when we start just realizing or hearing that we can look at it and turning within and seeing what this conditioning is, that's actually the great good news, and the other part of the understanding. Part of our nature is that we have this precious ability to actually discern suffering, the difference between more suffering and less suffering. You know, it's, it's kind of built in, like going uphill. If you're blind and walking uphill, you can still tell whether you're going up or down. So something in us can tell, is this more suffering or less suffering? And then we also have this ability to make a difference by our choices in the present moment. We can't change the past. We don't know what the future is going to be. But we have moments of choice. And often we don't perceive that we have moments of choice. But by practicing mindfulness and practicing all the steps of the path, we actually widen the opportunities that we perceive to have a choice. And especially as you start to look at faculties that we don't even think of very often, like our intention and our attention, and what are we doing with our minds? that we start to see, oh, we have a lot more choice here than we thought. And we find muscles we didn't even know we had about how we can step back and, and really make some adjustments in how we're relating to things that make a huge difference. So in that story from Mary Pfeiffer, I like that she used the word skillful because um, one of the main teachings around karma is that there's uh, this, that we can tell what's there's these two words in Pali kusala and akusala and they're translated various ways they're often translated in English as wholesome and unwholesome and the same words are translated as skillful and unskillful and they mean they're used for in the regular sense of skill like an artisan or a craftsman or someone doing target practice is considered skillful you know so when when you when things aren't going so well, it's, con- it's understood to be sort of missing the mark somehow. You know, you're not so, you haven't got the skill to know what's going on. And I also love the wholesome and unwholesome translation because that's related to the word whole. You know, and you really need to bring your whole self to bear on it. So you're looking, we're not closing off our intelligence, we're not closing off our hearts, we're not closing off our bodies, we're learning to open up in all those directions and let all that information in and be integrated and bring everything we have to bear on on understanding, tuning into what is the wholesome and refining our ability to discern what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. And then what's skillful, you know, to kind of bring about more wholesomeness and what's unskillful to, that we do out of habit that brings about less skillfulness. And so this understanding of karma is really also um, expressed in the third and fourth noble truths. The third noble truth being that there is an end to suffering. You know, and there's no end to what goes on in the world. 
but there can be an end and we can see it in many little moments and I'll talk more about this so you know you can see the difference between a moment of sufferings many of you spoke about just even expressing you know your experience of dukkha lightened it up a little or was helpful in some way so there are so many ways that we see ourselves moving in the direction of less suffering right and so that can go a long way so you just learn to really have in the beginning faith and then more and more verified faith and more and more confidence that this kind of work goes a long way and the third noble truth is a statement that it goes all the way that is still very much an article of faith for me not (laughs) direct experience but um, it's so far so good so um, and then the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path and I'm not going to say too much more about that because we're going to be studying that all year but it's not just random there is a path that uh, there are things that help and there are skills it's learning skills but we don't have to start from scratch because there's the Buddha's insights and there's 2500 years of practice with this and uh, things other people have learned so what we're doing is we're in this course we're going to be studying what the Buddha said was skillful and then we're going to be looking and testing and trying it out for ourselves and seeing if that's true or not so um, the the Buddha says that the question to keep in mind is what when I do it leads to long-term happiness and well-being for myself and for others and so when I do it is an important thing in there because this is the understanding of conditioning that in every moment we're making a choice and we're winding up with an action of body, speech or mind and that what's new to many people who are new to Buddhism is the idea of seeing that our minds have a kind of action lots of actions in them paying attention to this or that you can make a little effort to get on or off a certain train of thought you know you can keep going in a certain feeding a certain way of thinking about something or you can decide that this is not wholesome and I need to change what I'm thinking about so that looking at those actions of mind become very important Um, just a second I shuffled my papers looking for that one quote (laughs) so here's another line from the directly from the Buddhist suttas Whatever one keeps pursuing with thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of awareness. If one keeps pursuing thinking imbued with ill will, the mind is bent by this thinking imbued with ill will. And likewise the opposite. If we keep pursuing thinking imbued with goodwill, then the mind is bent by this thinking imbued with goodwill. So we're really training. You know, I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of a amateur reader of science and <laughs> I really this is so up for the last couple of decades of science the idea of neuroplasticity you know and we really are we're training our system we're training what chemicals are released by what kinds of thoughts under what circumstances so there's just a lot of work that we can do with our minds and our bodies and our hearts one more thing I wanted to point out is we use the word mind a lot but when you ask a lot of people from different Asian cultures where is the mind they point here 
You know, so the words for heart and mind are actually the same in many of these languages. And so the word that we're usually translating my mind is chitta, and it's a little unclear. Gil just wrote a very long paper that we read about what does that mean. But you can consider it to be your whole inner, the whole inner functioning that includes the impulses that come up and what we do with them and the whole network of our thoughts, our beliefs, our views, all that, and what, it, what actually, well, our whole inner life is sort of the mind. Okay? Um, so the Buddha does have a basic answer to what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Uh, there are considered to be three root poisons, three root unwholesome factors, which are called greed, hatred, and delusion. And if you think about us as, you know, descendants from amoebas <laughs> a long time ago, there's the basic move of grabbing onto what's, what you want more of and the basic move of pushing away what you want less of. And then there's the basic, oh, you know, I don't know, there's, there's that kind of delusion, and then there's the delusion of actually believing things that aren't true. You know, believing... We don't like the unknown very much. Have you noticed that? So rather than be with a moment of the unknown, the human mind cooks up, as Tanya was talking about, all kinds of thoughts and theories and beliefs. You'd like to think that you can look at one feature of somebody's face and know all about them somehow. You know, that, that's... That's, that's an example of delusion. And so much suffering in our world is based on people clinging to various ideas, you know, concepts. Tanya was also talking about how much direct experience is valued in this process. So we're actually looking beneath our concepts at what's really going on. You can have a con- having dwelling in a concept like pain is very different than being with moment to moment all the little feelings and pressures and heats and movement that go into an experience of pain. And so it's really our ideas and concepts that we cling to so hard and our identifications with, you know, I'm this kind of person. I still hear myself all the time whenever something goes wrong, some little thing in my mind says, oh, I'm so stupid. You know, I'm so stupid. And just... It's ridiculous, but it go. It says that over and over again, and some something is just constantly being reinforced that I'm so stupid. I might be doing some really very intelligent thing and just taking an extra minute to do it. Oh, you're so stupid. But, so, <laughs> what you know, we can start to look at this mental noise and what patterns we're reinforcing in this way. So, um, yeah. So, greed is a strong word, but it's it's when you know, we need to eat and drink and take care of ourselves, but when is that turning into this kind of craving and addictive grasping at really more than we need or using positive experiences, soothing sensual experiences for more than they can really deliver is what it's talking about. So expecting more, taking more than you need and expecting it to do more for you than it can do is where we're getting into this unwholesome route. And then hatred is... You know, everything from maybe the way you feel if you see a bug walking across your counter, you know, that move that wants to get rid of it. It's that move that something is a little unpleasant here and I want to get rid of it. You know, that move. Or you want to get away from it. Some people are more fear types and some people are more anger types. But all those moves are in the aversion category. 
And sometimes it's appropriate. We still want to get out of the way of the oncoming bus, you know. So it's not, it's a discernment process of when, when is that a skillful, when is that, oh, no, a skillful reaction and when is it starting to turn into making a whole concept out of this is a bad thing and I have to make sure it never happens again and you're investing more hatred in it, you're causing more suffering than you're alleviating by the way you're relating to the situation. And then, as I said, uh, delusion covers both, you know, what we don't know and what we think we know but don't. And the whole act of ignoring and tuning out every time we reach for some kind of distraction and just, you know, go to sleep rather than look at what's going on. That's the force of delusion at work. So this right view of karma is that we need to take cause and effect seriously, this conditioning, the fact that we're actually practicing something in every moment of choice. We're either practicing or reinforcing our same habits or we're giving ourselves drop by drop a chance to restructure our, our responses and our reactivities toward ways that lead to less suffering. So the skillful should be developed and the unskillful should be abandoned are the two tasks that follow from this basic teaching. And, you know, as with everything, it's easy to say and it's a long, slow process. (laughs) So it's very helpful to bear in mind. I love this understanding of skillful and unskillful and ignorance as the frame of it rather than, you know, good and bad and sinful and mistaken and terrible and all that, all those words you can put on it. Because it's also really important that we practice in a way that is wholesome and skillful. So if we're practicing, you know, we're going to be looking at a lot of, of, our, of our dukkha and our behavior this year that's not, you know, none of us have gotten to this age being 100% ideal in anything that we do or experience. So we're going to be looking at a lot of difficult stuff. And do you, how do you hold that? Do you hold that with, you know, self-criticism, shame, frustration that it's not changing faster than it could those are those are flavors of of hatred, you know. They're fla- and, or greed that it should change faster than it should, you know. Those are flavors of adding more of the unskillful to how we do it. But if you really understand this idea that conditioning, it's oh, it's conditioning, and you can step back. It's nature. You can look back and see, oh, this is this is the conditioning that's going on right now. And you probably can't just stop it, you know. If we could just see it once and stop on a dime, we'd all be enlightened long ago. But you you have to work with it very slowly, like it got built up very slowly. We're working with it very slowly. And so, but that perspective shift is so important between, you know, I'm so stupid, how come this isn't going faster? And wow, that is very strong conditioning. Because then you've got something you can look into. You know, you can understand, oh, this, and not just by looking, but looking back at the past is, is somewhat useful, understanding how this came to be, that, you know, babies were raised by babies, and it was, it's been difficult <laughs> for a long time for human beings. But then also you can see in the moment, how is that now playing itself out? You know, and this, a habit of, so I notice in myself, for example, that 
I'm high, through all the years of school, this isn't even childhood, but school and work and all those years, I'm highly conditioned that I better have a good verbal answer for whatever's about to happen. You know, and I, I just go up into my head instantly and cut off access to the whole rest of my body and anything else. And I start trying to figure out, you know, the answer and what's a smart thing to say. And so that happens so fast. But if you can catch it happening as it happens, you can start to feel that shutting off and that rush of energy into the head. And the more you can catch it like that, understand that it's conditioning, then you can, as you start to see it, then it starts to let go. It's like something in you that's not even your conscious doing of letting go. It's actually hard to let go as a conscious act. What, what you can do is really examine and understand and see really clearly what's going on. And then that part of you that's actually doing this in the first place because it wants to feel better gets more intelligent and it, it, it gets a better idea of how to feel better and it stops doing that once you really see the dukkha. You know? So this is how we begin to slowly work with our conditioning. Um... You might encounter in the readings, often this, as, we, as we do this practice, we come into a deeper wisdom around three ways of perceiving our experience. And I, I think some of our readings talk about these. And one of them is just opening to dukkha, which we were working with in the first half of the day, and understanding that, uh, that there is dukkha, and being able to admit it, as, as one of you said, that it's hard to see that this is going on. And then in some other ways we have a habit of thinking that the dukkha is worth it because we're going to finally get the whole world to line up and be the way we want it if we just grip a little tighter and try a little harder and scream a little louder at the people we disagree with. We're going to get it all to hold still. And that's a case of not seeing the dukkha that's because you're so caught up by the illusion of how great it's going to be. You know, and so a, a big orientation around this teaching is to keep coming back to how is it now? You know, happiness is here and now. The happiness and joy and peace that the Buddha is teaching about is always here and now. It's that's where it is. It's not something that you're gonna, you know, imagine the glorious day when and and you know strain to get to. So just always coming back to okay, right now. You know, how is it right now? over and over again. So there's the, this perception, accurate perception of dukkha, using those guardrails that Tanya mentioned. And the second one is, when we, the more we tune into our direct experience, we see this change, the second kind of dukkha that Tanya talked about. We let in that things are changing, and that things are inconstant, and that things are not exactly the little cookie cutters of our ideas that we put on them. You know, I heard someone this morning saying something about, you know, China, right? China is something or other. And I thought, hmm, you know, 900 billion people or whatever it is, times every second of the day, <laughs> times, you know, the last hundred years. How can you say anything? What are you referring to when you talk about how the Chinese are or something like that? You know, it doesn't, or Americans or any of us. It, those ideas simply don't fit the huge, complex, ongoing, changing flow of reality. And so the more that we see that kind of change, it begins to kind of loosen up the grip of our conceptual mind. And it loosens up the ideas that we have that we could somehow get it to all hold still, all the ducks to line up and 
be the way we want them and hold still, we begin to realize that's not the way it's going to, that's not the way to peace and happiness. So that insight into into impermanence or inconstancy or the way things are constantly changing. But at the same time, we are finding a deeper stability. We're finding a stability in our hearts and our goodwill and our ability to pay attention. So we're finding more, we're finding not dukkha, we're finding sukha, which means <coughs> sweetness and happiness. We're finding that. <coughs> we're finding reliable sources of that from within. And we're finding the stability that we can find in our steadying our attention through our meditation practice. So we're really letting go of false ideas about where stability and happiness is and finding truer sources of these things. And then we also begin to lighten up around the ideas that we have about ourselves. You know, who we are, how we define ourselves, what we are identified with, like the I'm stupid thing or I'm smart or you know, different ideas. And we, you know, when we're talking about a transformation of our minds and how we view view things, some of that involves letting go of some ideas about ourselves, you know. So the tighter we need to hold on to this is how I am and I'm this kind of person and this is always how I've always been and this is who I am, it helps to understand that that's an idea And that's going to sort of change along with the way other things change. And to be a little open to understanding that that looking at the ways that you talk to yourself about yourself and that you make yourself image, that you look to other people's approval or disapproval of you. So uh, backing off of gripping so hard at questions about who am I and so forth and really just what's happening right now and is it wholesome or not wholesome and how can I increase my skill in working with what's going on right now so those three those three developments are part of wisdom that we're cultivating when we have right view well okay I'm supposed to stop now Uh, Those three, well, they're usually called dukkha, impermanence, and not selfing, which is much misunderstood. The Buddha doesn't say there's no self. Don't get hung up on that. It's like, again, an activity of the mind. Do we, what, what are you taking to be yours? What's the point in saying, I'm stupid? You know, that's, you're taking an abstract attribute and applying it to some abstract thing and making suffering out of it. You know, or there's a lot of of taking something to be mine that isn't that is not necessarily yours. You know, my success on this project when hundreds of people contributed to it. You know, all sorts of ways that we do eyeing and meing and mining. So looking at it as an activity that you can do less of and suffer less. Okay, so those are the three. I just want to end with a couple of things. There's a lovely quote from. Henry David Thoreau, that I'm very fond of. He read some Buddhism, so maybe that's where he got it. But he says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue, and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. 
And I love that he said morally because that's very much in tune with the Buddhist teachings, that there's something about that grabbing and striking out motion that causes so much suffering to other people that's also at the heart of what causes our own suffering. So the more we practice in this way, the more we see that we're that what's good for the world is good for us and vice versa and there's no there's no need to feel that there's a deep conflict there. Okay, so let's have another breakout session. So um, let's do groups of, let's do groups of three again, but maybe a different three. One of the great joys of this program is that you get to meet lots of people. So if it's not, you know, if it's easy, mix it up a little and meet a different three people. Is anybody looking for a group? I've got a, great. You got, Ben's going to come your way. Okay, so introduce yourselves and then we'll come back to quiet and I'll read you the question. Do you looking for a group? We may need a group of four. I think we had a group of four last time, so. Okay. Okay, so I'll read the question and then we'll have a minute or so to think about it. The question is, can you bring to mind a time when shifting something within you, like your perspective, the way you're thinking about it, your attitude, maybe bringing in some compassion for yourself, some kind of internal shift made a difference in some kind of suffering that you were having or how you were relating to some difficult situation, even though maybe the external circumstances didn't change right away, or the, the shift came from within. Can you think of a time when that, when you felt something like that happening? It could be the smallest thing. Very small things count. That's how we learn.
And we'll have the same kind of go-around that we did before with the same structure that Tanya described. And we'll have... How did the two minutes seem short or long? Just right? Okay, we'll do two minutes again. Yeah, we'll have an extra time for you guys. So we'll have two minutes and then a little extra two minutes for for the group of four to finish. Okay? So let's begin with the person closest to me. (laughs) Okay? All right. You can stop thinking about your hair. Well, I can. I'm, I'm, I'm a little off now, but I'll be okay on this now that I'm watching. Okay. They probably get a little extra the first one. Okay. <laughs> if you want to set it, that's fine. Okay, let's take a moment. Take a moment, take a breath, come back into your own body, find your seat. Notice how it felt if you were sharing, to be speaking. Notice how it felt to be listening.
Okay, taking a moment to take a breath and settle and let yourself register how that felt to be sharing, how it felt to be listening. you do at the end here? Oh. So let's take another moment to breathe, settle, let the energy of the sharing and the listening settle. Something you might want to consider right now is what was the effect right now on remembering this incident that you shared? Mm 